Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities made an indelible mark on literature and pop culture when it was published in 1987. In this episode of 92Y Talks, the esteemed author sits down with New York University's Forum on Law, Culture, and Society director Thane Rosenbaum and United States Attorney Preet Bharara to reflect on the novel's cultural relevance almost 30 years after its debut. The conversation was recorded in front of a live audience on October 27, 2015 at New York's 92nd Street Y. Welcome. Welcome again to the Folks Film Festival here at the 92nd Street Y. Before we begin our discussion, I want to clear up what I, I imagine is, is a question that's on many people's minds here. Uh, Preet and I last night called Tom and asked him to wear a white suit. <laughs> uh, we were going for the cookie effect, and we had the dark on the outside. The thing about Tom, he didn't have a white suit, so we sent him to Barney's to get it. And... His wife was complaining. It's a pretty, but it looks good on you. Should consider you this look. Well, they make they make nice suits at Barnes. Yes, no, they should. You should work this, Tom Wolf. This white suit. Um, let's start with Tom. Uh, I, the last screening that we had for the Folks Film Festival a week ago, we showed the film Serpico, mm -hmm. and we had Frank Serpico, uh, and we had uh, Cyrus Vance Jr., the Manhattan DA. And the first question I asked Serpico was, uh, it's been, uh, in his case, it was 40 years since the events of the film had taken place. I said to him, what was it like to watch the film? And he said, you know, it was impossible to watch the film. He had a hard time, it was very unpleasant. It's been now 30 years since the events of this novel and the, the best-selling experience of this novel. Uh, how often do you watch the film? I know you and your wife sat in our audience and watched it. Uh, was it was it miserable for you, or were you happy to be here watching the film? What is it like when your novel is adapted into a movie, a, a critically acclaimed novel, adapted into a movie that's considered a flop? Well, it, it takes a while to realize that if someone makes a movie out of your, it's not going to be your book. It's going to be something very different. Um, and this was very different. <laughs> For example, at the end of the film, um, there's a marvelous, heartfelt sermon, really, from the judge. Um, and it kind of swe sweeps your emotions away there at the end. It's, uh, everything is working out well. And in the book, the judge and Sherman McCoy running for their lives. Uh, you, they had the same mob in there, but um, the, the, outcome, the outcome was a little different. Um, there was, also, okay, go ahead. Also, the, uh, this is an example of the changes. The studio was not happy uh, once they had the book uh, to see that the book ends with a white judge giving a lecture to a predominantly black audience. And they said, we, we can't do that. We can't do that. So that's when they brought in Morgan Freeman, who's a wonderful, uh, wonderful actor, but it, it completely changes the, um, the plot of the work. Well, not completely, but to a large part. And Sherman McCoy, who you unsparingly made unsympathetic in the novel, once the part was given to Tom Hanks, he was treated much more favorably. Oh, I, I'm... <laughs> I think that wasn't accidental. I think they discovered, hey, we've got this man born with a silver spoon in his mouth. 
Um, and who's going who's to have any sympathy for him? You can't help but have sympathy for Tom Hanks if he wants you to have sympathy. <laughs> you know, I was wondering uh, whether for you, in, if you're reading the papers nowadays, whether the, the novel and the film is sort of a deja vu all over again. I remember in the novel, uh, Reverend Beacon, it's not in the film, at one point says, uh, is a black life worth less than a white life? And that sounds a lot like uh, Black Lives Matter, um, which is, you know, a, a mantra of today. Uh, in the, two, the 2008 financial crisis, we had Occupy Wall Street, and now we're living in an era uh, where there's a great backlash against bankers, Wall Street in, insiders. There's a great sense of wealth inequality and class divisions. And those feelings are precisely the way people responded to Sherman McCoy in the mid-'80s. And it must be weird to you as if things either haven't changed or this is really the sequel. We're living through the sequel of Bonfire of the Vanity. Well, one thing that has changed uh, is that in the Bonfire of the Vanities, there's a, um, a there's a, a, a tremendous emphasis is put on, on Wall Street, for example. Well, we still know about Wall Street, but um, the, the masses of the universe are on their feet. They're shouting uh, as these things come up for, um, um, for sale, for bidding. Uh, the neckties are pulled down, coats, the jackets are off. I happened to go to Wall Street 25 years after the book came out. You would not recognize the place. There's nobody standing up and shouting. Um, it's mostly, at one point, the, this, what is known as high-speed trading was 70, almost 75% of the market. Um, and all of the uh, the, the great masses of the universe are now little clerks behind a, a bank of computers, and if they have anything to say, they have to say it on. Uh, uh, they have to tweet it, or, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and and that's about it. That that's I think a a, a huge change. Uh, the but you you're right about the but the racial tension. The racial uh, the racial stage is set to more or less the same way. Um, and but what about the resentment after 2008 of people who we know this tremendous wealth inequality, the income gap, the erosion of the middle class, the sense that, and we're going to talk to Preet about this, the sense that, well, you know, we bailed out the bankers, the bankers ended up paying, those, paying themselves bonuses, and no one went to jail. Uh, we thought when we read Bonfire of the Vanities, when we watched Oliver Stone's uh, Wall Street, that, you know, rich guys go to jail. And why aren't they? I mean, I'm wondering whether that sense of the resentment that you saw, the, street, the feeling on the street, is something we're recapturing now, not just in the candidacy of Bernie Sanders, but just in... I'm, until recently, I have never heard people complain about inequality. Um, certainly not the way it's, uh, it's talked of now. Um, that America seemed to have been spared that, but we in the press did all we could to keep the flames going. 
Uh-huh. You're saying Americans themselves never felt, experienced the sense of rich, no. the gaps between rich and poor. It, it just was not the American way of looking. We never had a class system here. You can't even get away with acting like you have a class system. Um, but suddenly the idea that, of, that the very rich are taking something from us uh, is becoming a real, uh, a real pain to, uh, to a lot of people. But it's, it's, a, it's a new thing, and where it's going to go, I have, I have, I have no idea. Preet, <clears throat> um, in the film, in the novel, prosecuting Sherman McCoy is a politically popular thing to do if you're a prosecutor. Uh, and we know prosecutors have discretion on what kinds of cases to bring. Uh, and sometimes there's a political calculation. We know that you have successfully, famously prosecuted terrorists and politicians and Wall Street insiders, inside traders. Uh, you define the, those are decisions that you make. What cases to bring? How should the Preet Bharara U.S. Attorney's Office be known? Uh, is it ever politically motivated for you? Um, no, but first I want to say... That's a softball. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. I was going to wear my white suit, but it's been at the cleaners for a long time. There are a lot of stains. Um, so it's nice to be with, with the least fanatic uh, Mets fans in New York this evening. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Um, look, you know, I know that the speech <clears throat> was an add-on, uh, Morgan Freeman's speech at the end of the movie, but what he says there is, I think, what prosecutors in my office, and hopefully in all prosecutors' offices, aspire to, you know, to make sure that you're engaging in justice, not just victory, um, and that you engage in things that bring out people's decency, and you act in a decent way, not just to notch victories on your belt. Um, and th that's a powerful message to people who are in my business. Now, when we bring a case, there are always going to be people on one side or the other who think we're either too harsh or too soft. And it, I think it used to bother me a little bit before I appreciated that people have their own points of view on things. But often it's true that if you're getting people who are thinking you're too harsh and people are thinking you're too soft, you're probably right in the mainstream ballpark of, of what the right thing to do is. Um, anytime a prosecutor, again, these are aspirational things, but anytime a prosecutor begins to think about political considerations, including what their future career might be in politics, or including what people of their putative party might think that they should do or want them to do, then that's the day that that prosecutor should resign. And it shouldn't work that way. Now, maybe it's the case that that happens in some places, but it shouldn't work that way. You know, our office has gotten, I've gotten a lot of criticism from a lot of people, depending on the cases we bring. And sometimes it's one constituency that thinks we're singling out that constituency. I mean, there was a, an, an occasion where, um, People suggested after an arrest and prosecution of an Indian diplomat that I was a self-hating Indian, and that must be why I'm bringing the case, and suggested in many, in many instances in the Indian media, I don't know if people remember that case, in the Indian media, that this must be the way that I am gonna prove myself as a viable political figure in America, because I'm Indian American, uh, and literally I was thinking, you know, really that's the way I'm gonna get votes in Utica, New York, that I prosecuted an unknown mid-level bureaucrat, and people actually wrote, when you think about you know, what people's motivations are, people actually wrote in my, the country of my birth, I was born in India, and an immigrant, at the age of one, uh, 
in a newspaper, someone wrote, uh, Preet Bharara is clearly doing this to prove himself, in the case of the Indian diplomat, to prove himself to his white masters. <laughs> Presumably Eric Holder and Barack Obama. <laughs> <laughs> So it is, it, is, it, is, it is the kind of thing that, that, that journalists and editorial writers, and in particular my favorite people, high-paid criminal defense lawyers, will allege about how prosecutors act. And I like to think in my office it's never the case, and in most places it's never the case, but it's, a, it's an easy accusation to lodge. Is there a sense, though, in your office that there's a public mandate and that you're responding to some degree about so the wishes of the public that they have uh, a, a more of an invested <clears throat> stake in one type of case. They say, you know, in the post 9-11 era, terrorism would have been one area where the public would have demanded the government. And by the way, Patriot Act uh, cases <clears throat> were inspired largely by the yeah. public's desire for justice and vengeance. Yeah, I mean, to the extent the public is concerned about a public safety problem, for example, the public is concerned about a gang problem in a particular neighborhood and people being shot on the way to school. That's a legitimate reason to pour resources into that because they're the people you serve. Or if people are concerned that the Chinese are hacking into our computers and stealing intellectual property at a rate unheard of in human history, then that's a legitimate reason because of you know, appropriate public concern you spend resources on that and you address that problem. That's, I think, all fine and all good and we're public servants. So you serve the public if the public has a concern about a particular thing. On the other hand, if it turns out that a group in the public wants a head, right, on a spike or in the gallows uh, because they think a wrong has happened, and maybe they're not wrong about the fact that an injustice has happened, uh, if you don't have the facts and you don't have the evidence and you don't have the law on your side, you have to be careful about acquiescing to a mob, while at the same time, as I said at the beginning, you want to take care to make sure that you're addressing concerns about public safety and, and, and doing things in the public interest. But I think those are, those are two different things. And you have to, you know, in the movie, just to bring this back to the, because there's a movie I think we saw tonight, mm. um, you know, it is appropriate to think about how you vindicate the rights of this person who had been run over, but not appropriate to say we're gonna get a head and a scalp no matter what, if it's the right person or not, or not the right person, or think about, as was portrayed in the movie, you know, having a white scalp because that would be advantageous to the person for political reasons. I mean, that, that's an obvious statement that, that you shouldn't do that. But you know, it takes, when people judge prosecutors, you judge them by the cases that they bring. But not only that, and I had a predecessor in the US Attorney's Office who said, I think, something equally important. You judge a prosecutor not just by the cases that he or she brings, but you judge him or her by the cases that they don't bring. And sometimes the biggest pressure is to bring a case that's not worthy of bringing because the law doesn't allow it. And mistake is not necessarily a crime, and negligence is not necessarily a crime, no matter how much we wish it to be so. Tom, you are famous for many, many things. Uh, you were one of the founders of the new journalism movement in which the idea was that nonfiction would have literary elements to them. Um, and your novels were, are, were famous for their uh, 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 commitment to uh, reflecting actual events in the culture, uh, looking at true social issues 
and, uh, and, and, and being relevant to its time. Um, I wonder for you whether in seeing the film, thinking about the novel, that you get nostalgic for what was happening in New York. You know, you started writing this novel in the early 80s as a serialization for Rolling Stone. Then you rewrote the novel. I think I'm getting this right. Yeah. You rewrote the novel. Again, you turned Sherman McCoy from a writer to a bond trader. Um, but while this was happening, this city was going through vast transformations. Uh, uh, Wall Street was becoming much more relevant, which is why you picked up on something early. Um, uh, the idea of, of Wall Street people going to jail, right? That itself, people remember, this is a 1980s, and that the U.S. Attorney's Office would be involved in that even. This is a very 1980s phenomenon. Today we take it for granted, but this is something we started to, to think about. So can you, what, was, what in your mind was, was happening? You were obviously influenced by the city. Uh, oh, well, I was... It was completely a job of reporting. I knew nothing. The novel. Um, the novel. Right. Uh, as well as the nonfiction. Um, I, knew, I knew nothing about uh, any district attorney's office or any, any, any prosecutor's office. I knew, um, I knew nothing about, um, uh, well, I knew a little bit about hustlers like Reverend Bacon. Um, but I had to go out and do a, a, a lot of a lot of homework. To me, realism is very is is very important. You you at one point went and spent some time at Solomon Brothers. I did. Um, I, I spent uh, two days on the um, bond bonds. At that time, were the big um, the big item on Wall Street. They are they are not now, um, but they were then, and. I remember sitting, um, having a telephone on the same line as a, the, I think he was the deputy bond trading chief, and I didn't know what I was listening to, the, the, uh, um, the language of, uh, of, of trading. But I stayed there for two days, and I finally, I, I finally learned a, a little bit about it. Um, and when I wrote that book, my attitude was not so much I've got this one, I've got that one. It was like, look at these people. Look at, what they, look at the way they live. Look at what they do. And that's still my attitude towards New York today. I love the place. Uh, uh, you, you're never going to be shortchanged looking around New York. <laughs> but crime, fear of certain urban neighborhoods, things that we don't think we've taken for granted with the decline of the, uh, the crime rate. Uh, but the Bernie Getz case, which was actually something we did here at, at, at the Forum on Law, Culture, and Society, um, obviously that too figured into it. When Sherman says, I don't, I've never been in a subway, right? It's not clear whether that's purely a, a, because of his wealth or because he was afraid of the subway. People forget there was a time when people didn't go into the subway. Uh, was that the, clearly the idea of the menace of urban areas pervades this whole story. Well, it it it, it did, uh, except to me that was sort of the given, um, and it was more to me it was more important to, to some try to get underneath the skin 
of these various factions. Um, I, um, Reverend Bacon and, the, and the, the novel itself came out in 1987. Uh, and people keep telling me it was Al Sharpton. But Al Sharpton was not known, well, he was known by some people, but it really was not known until about six months uh, after the, that book came out. Um, so, you had a different hustler I, in mind. I find it, I find it difficult to find real differences uh, between New York then and, and, and New York now. There have not been any revolutionary social changes uh, in New York. And you can see that when uh, the same issues of black against white uh, recur, and it probably won't be the last time. Uh, Preet Bharara is actually, this is his second visit for the Folks Film Festival. Years ago, we had him um, with, for the film Absence of Malice. Preet, I'm wondering, <clears throat> what is it in your mind that makes the prosecution of Wall Street people, <clears throat> bankers, traders, culturally interesting? It does look as if Tom introduced this idea and there were other books, right? It was Liar's Poker. There were a number of books that came at the Den of Thieves, I think, uh, Barbarians at the Gate. These are four books that were gigantic, none as big as Bond for Our Vanities, but they were large books about this idea. We saw Wall Street, the film. This was all happening in the mid-1980s. And we've never lost it. We've always now had sort of an interest, even as we follow your prosecution of Wall Street, people. Uh, why do you think that they make for such interesting defendants? Yeah, I think there are a couple of reasons for it. One is, you know, is Shakespearean, right? Someone rises high and then they fall or they have a flaw that causes them to fall. That's been interesting in literature and poetry, you know, going back to the Greeks and before that. Um, so that's one reason. So when someone reaches the heights of power, like Michael Milken or some of the people that my office has prosecuted in recent times, that's interesting to people. You know, people like to see a fall. Um, it's, it's much better than a car wreck. <laughs> Second, I think, <clears throat> I think there's a natural curiosity. I get the, the, the question I get most often when I speak to business students and I go and speak to all the major business schools every year and talk about what we do and why we do it and what Wall Street culture is about and what it should be about. And to traders, I mean, I spoke last week to a group of asset managers at Harvard Business School and often the question you get is, you know, somebody who has so much money and who has earned you know, more income than you could ever spend in a lifetime <clears throat> and more uh, you know, repute than you could ever, you would hope, squander in a lifetime. You know, what are they doing if they have everything, committing crimes to get a little bit more of what they already have more of than they can ever spend? That's an interesting question, right? People understand, even though they can be horrified by some of the other crimes that we prosecute, whether you're a terrorist or you're an ideologue, um, or people who have had uh, tough lives and they got into a life of gangs, and we do a lot of those cases. Um, you deplore it, but you can understand it. And there's something not understandable to average people about how a guy who's got a, literally a billion dollars <clears throat> um, and is living a nice life, why they would risk separation from their liberty and free air for a few million dollars more. And I don't know the answer to that question, but it happens, and it happens all the time, and that's why we're as busy as we are. But there's something about 
you know, that thing that, that is curious to people. You know, we've charged people who other folks expect, I mean, it's not part of our job. As I say often, I'm not a psychologist or a life coach. Um, we just bring evidence in cases at trial. But it is interesting at forums like this to think about why people do what they do. And you know, we had an example of a defendant who was worth a, hundred, a cool $100 million, and some people speculate. <clears throat> well, why did that person, was $100 million, I'm, I venture to guess that's more money than most people here have. Thane may have $100 million, but no one, not, not Yeah, other. NYU's unreal that way. Not <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, don't tell people, but it's sick. <laughs> The suit looked very nice, yeah. so I don't know. We, t we coordinated. Yes, I'm <laughs> part of the cookie, I understand. Yeah. Um, and so you know, people speculate that, that, that it's always keeping up with the Joneses, even when you're talking about that rarefied area of wealth that this person, people may understand who I'm talking about, that there was speculation on, wanted to become a billionaire and thought, how can a person like me, who is so smart and so erudite and so wise, how come I don't have as much money as this guy and then committed crimes. And so it's interesting as a matter of human nature to see both the fall and to wonder why it is people who have so much sacrifice that for a little bit more of the same. You know, I think everybody, no matter what station they may be at it, <clears throat> looking at it objectively, is part of a, what I call a status fear. And you can be just as, as anxious and uh, torn apart by the fact that someone's making 10 million or 5 billion more than, uh, than you are, and you're, you're already very, very wealthy. And it happens the other way around, too. The, uh, um, there are people who seem to be at the bottom who are part of a status sphere that's very important to them. I remember during the Second World War, <clears throat> being <clears throat> in a general store in, in North Carolina, uh, and these three uh, old, good old boys, I call them, uh, who were too old to go into the service, were having a discussion about the war. And one of them said, you know, it seems to me the whole trouble here is this man called Hitler. I don't know why we risk these ships being sunk out in the ocean and running all these huge expenses. We ought to just send somebody over there and shoot him. And so the, another good old boy says, well, I expect it's not that, uh, it's probably not that easy. He said, yo, you get me, you, you get me over there. Get me over there. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I'll take care of the, of the whole problem. And so another one says, well, how are you going to do that? He says, well, what I'll do is I will go to his house. I'll ring the door, doorbell. And if he comes, I'll shoot him. I, I, I have a rifle underneath <laughs> by you. And they said, well, I'm sure he doesn't answer, he doesn't answer the door himself. Uh, he says, well, what I'll do then is I'll wait till nightfall. I'll still have a rifle underneath my uh, raincoat. And I'll climb over the wall and back. And I'll hide behind a tree until it's morning. And when he comes out to pee, I'll shoot him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, this is a, a, if you will, a statusphere in which people do not trust the government to take care of anything. They just won't do it. They complicate matters. They throw things in, in, in the way. And it's, it's good old boys like us who know how to take care of things. Uh, why don't they just call on us to do it? Um, I think that's just as common as the rich man who's not rich enough. Um, 
and uh, just not to be a, a confession here, but you know, writers seldom start off with the idea they're going to make money writing. They really don't. Uh, they think they're going to be famous. This and that's going to happen. It has nothing to do with money. It doesn't have anything to do with money until uh, you start seeing writers around you who are uh, making a lot of money. <laughs> uh, <laughs> until then, your motives are absolutely pure. Uh, so I think it enters into practically anything you, un you, you undertake. Um, there was a real insight in that story about that good old boy realizing that the Germans didn't have toilets, <laughs> you know, because I thought they did. Uh, um, well, at one time they were very advanced. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, Tom, so people are surprised when they learn, some of you today may learn, that this was actually, Bonfire to Vanities was your first novel. Yes. You were already a best-selling writer of nonfiction. Uh, the Right Stuff, which is my favorite Tom Wolfe book, uh, which was turned into a really wonderful film. Uh, that was part of your nonfiction books that actually read like novels, but they were nonfiction. Um, then you became this best-selling novelist, uh, and then you got in a sort of a spat with John Updike and with John Irving. And John and uh, Norman and Mailer. Norman don't, Mailer. Don't, don't leave him. Yeah, don't leave him. Because <laughs> Norman Mailer rarely liked to fight. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> and that spat was about how you had said, look, you know, novels have to be relevant to the times. They have to deal with real things. You know, you can't, like John Irving, you can't, you didn't say this, but I would, you can't just write about bears, you know? You gotta, <laughs> bears don't affect that many people, right? You gotta go to the where things are happening. And I wonder now whether you're, you would say, because you've given this a lot of thought, and you haven't, I don't think you've written another nonfiction book since you've been writing fiction. I have one that I've just finished. But that, right, but so there's been at least three novels mm -hmm. since. So are you of the view that these books are largely the same because they're locked in a time and a place and real events? So you can call them fiction, you can call them nonfiction, it doesn't really matter. Uh, of, are you of the view that, that novels and nonfiction are equally important in the fact that they take people to places they would not have been and teach them things they would otherwise not know. I, I think in the long run, uh, nonfiction is a superior medium. Um, and it's, there, <clears throat> there are four devices, not, not, not to become a professorial, uh, that uh, that draw the reader deep into a, uh, a story, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Uh, one is um, scene by scene construction, so you don't have little essays in between the, the, uh, the scenes. If you have an essay to pr pronounce, you, somehow you draw it into a scene. Uh, <clears throat> accurate dialogue and lots of it, the more the better. It turns out dialogue is the, most, is the easiest thing for a reader to read. Uh, it, it just it flows in. Uh, the third is the uh, notation of status details, uh, which comes out in the way people dress, also their voices, every, all sorts of habits uh, bear in on your, uh, your, your, your social uh, uh, social uh, status. 
uh, in fact, it, it's a, a real, um, it's, it's a real defect if a, um, if a book does not, uh, not do that. And you're saying we expect that in a novel, but not many nonfiction writers realize that you have to take them to places and give them dialogue and describe things, what people are wearing. And that, well, that's why you end up doing, I, at least I do, uh, so much reporting for a um, nonfiction book. It's, I, didn't write a, I didn't write a book, I didn't publish a book of fiction until I was 57 years old. Um, all the rest had been uh, nonfiction. Uh, it's, you're, you can't send somebody else to, out to do it. You have to be there. Um, the, actually, the, the book I'm proudest of that I've done was a book called Radical Chic and Mao Mao the Flack Catchers, uh, both of which I considered great jobs of, of reporting. I'm probably prouder of that than than anything I did in terms of, of, of style. Do you, just, do you all know what book Tom is talking about? Because it's really, this is, a, this was a major book. This was inspired by uh, dinner parties that Leonard Bernstein and his wife threw for the Black Panthers yep. uh, at the Dakota. And then Sidney Lumet and Gail Lumet threw their own parties. And so these like, you know, leftist intellectuals were consorting with the Black Panthers and this was this concept that you invented the term, radical chic. I think, in a way, it was more, f more fashion than it was leftism. Uh, <laughs> uh, right, you're saying it wasn't even ideological, it was just fashionable. I don't think it was ideological. To say that we had the, we had the Black Panthers over for dinner. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure, well, I won't speak for the Bernsteins, but I imagine they thought it was quite a, actually a social coup to, uh, to have done that. The, the fact that after the book Radical Sheet came out, that you didn't see much more of that, uh, says something about real dedication. Uh, <laughs> uh, but right, the dinner parties were over. The, you, the dinner they parties, came to a halt. The dinner parties were, were, were over. Um, but you were, you were finishing the idea of the differences between writing fiction and nonfiction, mm -hmm. and that for you, you think nonfiction is a superior form, but if it's done a certain way, if it's done novelistically, I suspect. Well, you know, just using those uh, devices becomes the, right. uh, the key thing, because either one is going to reach the emotions of a, of a reader only whether it's a novel or, or something else, um, by having, having it's a little of a screen of words between you and what you're writing about. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what the, uh, I didn't invent the term, but um, Pete Hamill did actually. The, the new journalism was all about, uh, was trying to draw uh, people into nonfiction stories the way they are drawn into uh, uh, novels. All today, not to knock novelists, but um, something happened after the Second World War. Our, our writers became very French. And the French had already established the fact that this realism was just muck. You're just reaching down into the dirt. Uh, and what you should have is psychological tension. 
uh, the word psychological was used over and over, over again. And there are all these different movements, uh, uh, concretism and uh, uh, magic realism was another movement. Uh, and it, it really changed the nature of, of what uh, was taught in Master of Fine Arts programs in writing. Uh, it, was, it was just something kind of crass about it's realism that people are going in for. I think there's no substitute for, and, uh, and for realism. And one of the reasons why Emile Zola, for you, is such a major yeah, writer. I, I'm the, of all the writers I've ever read, I, I, my top pick would be Zola. He's not all that popular today. Uh, you don't, I don't hear many courses, of he's, many he's courses. He's actually known only for the newspaper article, Jacques, yes. mostly, in the Dreyfus Affair. That's, uh, that's Which true. is a shame, right? Yeah. You would say that's a shame. Um, <clears throat> starting with l'assommoir, which, um, which means uh, the, the bar, the uh, mm -hmm. knocking shop is the, is the closest word in English, closest term. Um, You're saying it, this style was this which existed before the French took us down into a different level of psychological complexity and other things that are not about getting into the muck. Yeah, it's, the French really changed in, in, in the 1880s uh, at a time when Zola and de Maupassant were the most popular writers in the world, probably. Um, and the the really rarefied French intellectuals began to, to discover the symbolist poets, uh, Rambo and Baudelaire and, uh, and so on. Um, and they began to look down upon these big novels of Zola's, uh, or Balzac for that matter, uh, as something that was really rather vulgar. Yeah. And whereas the great poets uh, were giving you flights of imagination that transcended reality. Uh, and that's a lot of that that still goes on. After that, we began to uh, be ecstatic over people like James Joyce, mm -hmm. uh, which I think for everybody who ever read it, it was a hard read. Um, really? Yes. <laughs> it's a, a, a very hard read. Um, uh, but the thing is to like it. Yeah. Um, Preet, um, I was wondering, uh, speaking of psychological complexity, uh, what, is there a difference between uh, financial crimes and violent mm -hmm. crimes when it comes to questions of psychological, uh, legal, emotional commitments that both exist in your office? In other words, do, do prosecutors think that violent crime, terrorism, is just more important than financial crimes? Yeah. Uh, do you think that people see it that way as well, that there's a different level? Prosecuting these cases is different. What you say in front of juries is different. When you're dealing with a nice, when you're dealing with a, a guy in a nice suit and a white, you know, a true white collar crime, everything about it, psychologically, legally, morally, uh, it's just a completely different way of approaching the case. I, I don't think different crimes that we prosecute 
are completely different. They're not different animals. They're part of the same uh, you know, species. Whether you're trying a gang case or a terrorism case or a financial fraud case, it's about facts, it's about evidence, it's about the law that comes to you, it's about proving your case beyond a reasonable doubt to a unanimous jury of 12 ordinary Americans. That said, there are a couple of differences, I guess, between how you prosecute and think about and argue about white-collar cases versus other cases. A, a predominant difference is that when, on a street corner, you see a guy kill a guy point-blank with a gun, uh, other than, I guess, the possibility it was in self-defense, th the question of whether or not a crime has been committed is not really there. The question for the prosecutor is proving that the particular person charged did the crime. Whereas when you're talking about a financial crime, often you need not only prove, uh, and it can be difficult, that the person you've charged committed the crime, but that a crime was committed. So th there is nothing, there's something inherently bad, immoral and unlawful about killing somebody or punching someone um, or setting fire to a house. There's not something inherently bad about buying a stock, to choose that example. And so it be, it's a much more difficult endeavor, the people on the fifth floor of my office will tell you, because you have to prove not only that the act happened, but that it was illegal as well. And to prove that, you have to get inside the mind of the person, and you have to prove that the state of mind of the person who was alleged to have committed the crime was a corrupt one. That's hard also in public corruption cases, and we have a couple of those winding their way through the system. Um, and so that becomes very difficult. So you know, part of what you have to do to prove a case like that is to show that you have often a cooperating witness or a tape or a cover-up. And so most of the insider trading cases you see that we brought are about what by themselves would be the innocent purchases or sales of stock, but the story behind those purchases or sales become important to prove that the person knew that they were trading on insider information. The second way in which it's different in terms of the effect we have uh, on the public is, you know, some people are motivated by different things. Some are motivated by greed, some are motivated by ideology. The terrorists, are, those are more serious crimes because our very way of life is at stake when you're talking about Al-Qaeda or ISIL or AQAP or Al-Shabaab or any one of these terrorist organizations that the Defense Department goes after and that prosecutors sometimes go after. And they're very hard to deter because they're motivated, you know, some of them kill themselves in the effort to kill all of us. That's hard to get at, that's hard to deter. Um, you know, some people who have been brought up in a life of crime and are hardened violent criminals, they're hard to deter also. I'll tell you one thing that never happens. When an FBI agent or a DE agent shows up in the morning to arrest a hardened gang member, they tend not to faint, right? They get arrested. Do you know who faints? White collar criminals. Um, it, it, it has been, it has been, <laughs> I wanna talk to that guy. <laughs> right after this program. Um, and it turns out... All, the cuffs are coming, by the way. It, it, I know who he is. Um, it, 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 it turns out... I can't believe you shut up. It turns out that often it's the case if you have a gigantic house and you have millions of dollars and you have a great life and everything is perfect for you and you think you're getting away with you know, an accounting fraud or a Ponzi scheme or whatever the case may be and the FBI agents show up that's a day of doom for you, and, and people like that often, they, it happens not infrequently, they collapse to the ground, and I hear about it. The relevance of that is you hope, and hope springs eternal, that with people who are really smart, who are about the money, who went to the best business schools in the world, they, 
they are trained to think about cost-benefit analysis. So part of the job for us is to make sure that the next guy who is down the street or is down the hall from the guy who gets arrested for being stupid and committing crimes and taking advantage of people, the, the second guy down the street or down the hall thinks to himself, it is not, I have my hundred million, I'm good. <laughs> and, and I don't have to do the, I don't have to do the bad thing. So in some ways there is a bit more, maybe it's misplaced, I don't think it is, there's a bit more optimism because of the psychology of the crime of a white collar criminal. Let's take, a, let's take a question or so from the audience. This is first for Tom. Mr. Wolf, uh, did you have much to do with the making of the film? No. Um, <laughs> yeah. Actually, I've never wanted to work on a film made of something that, uh, uh, that I've done. It's, it's, like, it's like retreading your own steps, but in a, in a more inefficient way. Uh, and, uh, but the first, the, actually, the first thing that was turned into a movie that I had written um, was uh, a story called The Last American Hero. It was about a stock car driver yeah. named Junior Johnson. And, and for the movie, they changed the name to Junior Jackson, but it was the same sort of, uh, uh, same, same sort of thing. Um, but uh, they... They, they used an actor who is so good, Jeff Bridges. There has never been a bad Jeff Bridges film. There can't be. If he's in it, it's, it, it at least will reach the level of mediocrity. Uh, and, it, and, and it may be, and it very well may be great. So I didn't even... I, w I didn't even notice the changes and how things were done differently because uh, that guy is so good. He finally, it took him years, decades, to finally get an Academy Award. Uh, but then after that, I began to notice how different it, a movie is going to be. It's going to be different. Don't kid yourself. I, I think of a movie like The Godfather. One of the things that... Uh, it's very hard to do in motion pictures, is to show status details. I mean, for example, somebody's wearing a pair of Gucci's with a, loafers with a link in the middle, and the other person isn't. Uh, you can't just show that in the film. And, and somebody may do a close-up of the shoe. Right, it won't do anything. Somebody has to explain it, and they're not gonna stop to explain much in, in, in a movie or things of that, of, of that sort. Um, and that becomes, Dis disturbing to the uh, to the the writer. So the writer is probably the last person to, to bring a film uh, to justice. Preet, um, this comes from our audience. So the, this person wants to know. We know we've read recently that there have been some setbacks in some of the Wall Street cases. Some overturned. Some going through different stages. Was it that guy who asked that question? I, <laughs> I think that guy's been taken away. Already. Okay. All right. <laughs> this must have been a new person. So this person simply wants to know what next, and I'm not sure exactly what they mean. I suspect they're saying, are you changing direction in the prosecution of these cases? I assume that you're going to still pursue these cases and you're going to still, uh, some are under appeal, and the, the emphasis on financial crimes is still something that's a priority in, in Preparara's U.S. Attorney's Office. Yeah. So we keep doing what we're doing if the law and the facts support what we're doing. 
and without going through a long exegesis on what happened with respect to a particular subset of cases, the small percentage of the cases uh, that we have brought in the insider trading area, I'll bring it back to the movie. And one thing we haven't talked about, I don't know if there are reporters here, maybe there are, uh, the way in which you are completely accurate in the portrayal and bonfire of the vanities of how the press sometimes, there's still yellow journalism now, um, I'm not accusing anyone in particular of that, but, but the press likes to have a story of who's up, who's down, who's fighting, who's not fighting, and those are interesting stories. So I'll just give you an example of what happened last week. So the Second Circuit, which is the appeals court here, uh, including New York and, and a couple of other states, decided, in, in our view, to change the law in a particular way. Um, everyone uh, who pled guilty in connection with a particular case, including six cooperating defendants, pled guilty uh, with able counsel who understood the law to be what we understood it to be. It was basically virtual unanimity about what elements you had to prove to show that an insider trading uh, case could be proved. And the Second Circuit disagreed on one count, and I think there's, there's wide agreement that it changed the law. Uh, we petitioned for the, to the Supreme Court. The Solicitor General wrote a terrific brief in which he said, not me, but he said, that the Second Circuit's decision was wrong, was gonna make it easier for bad people to corrupt the markets, and make it easier and uh, harder to enforce the securities laws the Supreme Court decided not to review the case, so the Second Circuit law stands. Now, you've got, in our view, two people who committed crimes who are no longer able to be prosecuted because the law has changed, and those convictions were overturned. Meanwhile, uh, I made the decision, along with people in my office, to vacate the conviction, to, to move to dismiss the convictions of six defendants involved in that case uh, who had pled guilty and who decided that they had done the wrong thing, and able judges and able lawyers all believed that they had committed the crimes, and the elements were what we all almost unanimously thought that they were. And there are people in the journalism world who wrote, you know, huge setback, this is a terrible thing, um, which maybe it is to some folks. Um, we were not forced to dismiss those cases. What people don't get is, that was a decision we made before a judge asked us to do it, uh, when we could have made an argument for maintaining those guilty pleas, but if you go back to what Morgan Freeman said at the end of the movie about what justice is, we felt it was unfair if the two guys who denied their guilt could no longer be prosecuted because the Second Circuit, in our view, changed the law, then it's not fair for these six people who were less culpable, who cooperated, who pled guilty, it was not fair to maintain guilty pleas against them. And so we decided in one fell swoop to move in our discretion because we thought it was the right thing to do to dismiss their cases. And that's how we go about it, and it's not always portrayed that way, um, but our job is always to apply the law and the facts as we understand them to be, and if the law changes, if Congress tomorrow passed a law saying, like, heroin is cool, we wouldn't prosecute heroin cases, and if, if Congress tomorrow adopted the Wall Street Journal editorial page's view that all insider trading is awesome, <laughs> then, which, which appears to be their view, then we wouldn't prosecute those cases. And when the Second Circuit changed the law with regard to a particular you know, element about what constitutes a benefit to the tipper, then we move on from those cases. And you're going to see us bring, by the way, the, the vast majority of insider trading cases, which total over 100, um, you know, remain solid and stand. The case against Roger Rutnam, the case against Roger Gupta, the case against SAC Capital. So the law sometimes changes and throws you a fastball and you adapt and you know, you're not bitter about it. 
um, you say your piece about it, you, you exhaust your appellate options, and then you continue to bring cases that you think are appropriate to bring. Well, now, there's one business in which I th believe insider trading is fair game, and that is the, the world of art. Um, Go on. The, <laughs> uh, if, the, tra <laughs> the, the trading cannot be, cannot be well, in the, at the lowest level, there are, when the item of, of uh, art is somewhat arcane, esoteric, like furniture, uh, there's a, a limited number of, of, of uh, dealers who are dealing in it. Um, and there have been known to be cases in which um, they will decide what the price is going to be. They get together. And it's a ring. Uh, and they decide what the prices are going to be and, and who gets to, to buy it this time. Next time, somebody else will get it. Now, that's illegal. But uh, simply to hype the value of art is not at all uh, illegal. And that's why today the, the great uh, and most profitable forms of art are, um, uh, one is um, um, uh, no hands art. Uh, for example, Jeff Koons, uh, he will have his elves build a 45 foot high uh, mound of dirt uh, and plant uh, f flowers on it. And it, 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 well, you can't buy that pile of dirt actually, but uh, he, he'll, he'll make, he'll have a, the elves make a, a blow up rabbit, you know, the kind of thing where the, the, the balloon ears and the balloon body. Uh, and those things go for enormous, enormous prices. And that's no hands. All right. The uh, other great one now is, is called a tenure art. Uh, T is in Tom, E for easy, N for Nathan. Um, and I'll tell you an example, because I, I was invited to one. The, the artist, the artist, um, <laughs> takes, takes us to a, a small lake. It was down in Florida. And uh, he has a, about a 10-foot length of chain, and it's heavy, really heavy chain. On either, each end of the chain, is a polyurethane bag full of vegetables. And so the first part of, the, of this uh, piece of tenure art uh, is that he lays the chain out on the surface of the lake and <laughs> goes right to the bottom. There's no, no question of that. And he brings you back. He, he wasn't able to bring everybody back. But, um, <laughs> about two months later, and there's the, the chain, same chain is floating on the surface of the water because the Vegetables and the polyurethane bags have rotted, uh, creating a gas that uh, lifts the, ch the chain up. Now, you, obviously, you can't sell uh, a work of art like that. Um, but if you are successful enough at doing that, you can get tenure at a university if you're hired as a professor. <laughs> and uh, so that's... At the very least, you know, you have a, uh, you have a, after six years, you have a permanent job. You have a, you have a pension, may not be great, but you've got it. Um, so there's, it's a strange market. That's a different market. <laughs>
The Folks Film Festival continues Monday night at NYU Law School at 6 p.m. for The Social Network, where we'll have Jesse Eisenberg, who stars as Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, so that should be fun. Please come out. That's Monday night at NYU School of Law. Uh, if you're not already on our website with our email address so that we can give you information of our upcoming events, please go to folksfolcs.org, folcs.org, and give us your email address so we can give you notification. I want to thank first Preet, our good friend, uh, crusading, crusading prosecutor, and a good friend to folks. Thank you, Preet. You're a very good friend of ours. And Tom, you are a national treasure and the true master of the universe. <laughs> Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations on 92yondemand.org.